Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which we are based, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and extend that respect to the elders past and present. Hi everyone, welcome to the third EWB UNSW Inspire podcast of 2021. My name is Muskan and I'm the project director for EWB UNSW. My name is John and I'm one of the project coordinators. Joining us today is Dr. Andrew Dancy, who is a senior lecturer in humanitarian engineering at UNSW. Would you like to introduce yourself and what you do? Hi, hi Muskan. Hi, John. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, as you said, I'm a senior lecturer in humanitarian engineering here at UNSW in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Um, I joined UNSW um, in uh, 2019 in this role, having spent time working overseas in the international development sector um, with the United Nations. Um, I'm really excited to be in this new position. It's the first time a position has humanitarian engineer in its title at the university. Um, to work with both the research community and the students in the education capacity um, in humanitarian engineering. And I think one thing that's important to note is that while this position is the first one in its title, there's a lot of existing and excellent humanitarian work being done across the university by academics um, and students um, that do not have that um, uh, name in the title. But I think it's a reflection of the interest in this area and the, the opportunity to grow. That sounds good. And speaking of humanitarian engineering, how would you describe it to someone who has never heard of it before? That's a really good question. Um, humanitarian engineering um, works with um, disadvantaged people and or communities. Um, they tend to be in low and middle income countries, um, but also we do work in Australia as well, especially in remote and regional communities. Um, the humanitarian um, aspects there the provision of basic needs um, are similar in Australia as they are in overseas. And the key thing about the humanitarian engineering part is that it is a sustainable and an appropriate solution. So working with the communities um, and the recipients to identify what's needed and then work with them to develop a solution that works for them. What made you interested in humanitarian engineering and how did you incorporate this with your experience in the water sector? Mm -hmm. Um, I graduated um, back in South Australia, did an undergraduate degree at Flinders University and postgraduate at the University of Adelaide, and then went off to work in the private sector in Western Australia. Um, I enjoyed the work over there in the consulting sector very much, um, but I felt like there was something that I wanted to do um, perhaps a bit uh, more in the, in the fields of sustainability and international development. Um, and using my water expertise from my degree and my private sector um, work, I was lucky enough to get a job working for the United Nations University, which is the UN think tank on water, um, looking at water resources management globally. So I was very fortunate to be able to travel to lots of parts of the world um, and look at different water problems um, and different water solutions um, in whole different contexts, ranging from aquifers to lakes to rivers to the coastal zone as well. So both freshwater and marine. That sounds really cool. Like just like uh, going from science like into like that humanitarian engineering side of things. Um, so last year in your podcast with Hugo, you mentioned that humanitarian engineering also encompasses the broader environmental context. Why do you think it's important to consider environmental constraints when it comes to humanitarian engineering? That is an excellent, an excellent question. And I think that comes back to the humanitarian engineering solutions needing to be sustainable and appropriate. 
the solutions that we are working with need to be um, need to last long after the um, the you know the donor country or the donor organisation um, have left and needs to work within the local environment and with the um, owners of the that, that land and that 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 resource. Um, the um, uh, the population that we have on the planet today, um, you know, we're, we're approaching eight billion people. Um, at the end of World War II, we were roughly around two billion people. So, in the, in the last eighty years, <clears throat> we've almost you know quadrupled the number of people on the planet. So any solutions we come up with have to be aware of the finite resources that we have and have to not make the pressures on the environment worse. So that's a very important thing in humanitarian engineering, but environmentally um, uh, more broadly as well, all, ki all kinds of um, things we do on this planet. What do you believe are some of the biggest challenges in the field of humanitarian engineering and the ability to work remotely on these challenges? I think some of the biggest challenges are that population pressure. We have to try and do more with less. There's more people on the planet than there were. Um, and with the um, economic hardships that are occurring all around the world due to the recent COVID um, disruption, that we've also seen decreases in the international aid budget and the money needed to help those that are most that are you know least fortunate on the planet. Um, so we need to do more with less financially as well. Um, and that is a really big challenge um, that's that we face. Yeah, would you say with the COVID sort of like border restriction, is it sort of like, is COVID making it harder to reach out to communities? Yes and no. And, and, and um, apologies, Muskan, I forgot the second part of your question there about working remotely, which ties in, John, to what you just said then as well. Um, because we can't travel now, that used to be a big part of the humanitarian sector was to go overseas. And there still are important parts of the humanitarian sector doing that. Red R Australia being one, of course, um, deploying professionals overseas in, in response to disasters, um, but also in response to forced migration, refugee camp management and other, other important work. So those travels are still, are still occurring. Um, people like myself that work in international development um, are no longer able to travel. Um, and we're seeing, um, you know, I suppose pros and cons of that. Instead of people just flying in and talking about a meeting and leaving again, we're having to really work with those existing in-country partners that we have um, and, and put everything in their hands and, and work with them remotely. And this works really well. We've got some partners we're working with um, in Kenya and Uganda, um, looking at SDG 6 and provision of safe drinking water. And other partners we've got in the Solomon Islands looking at um, air quality and the impacts on health, especially in poor and disadvantaged income um, communities and, and individuals, individual households, um, and WhatsApp and those kind of technology, technologies are available overseas. And just having video calls out in the field, if there's problems with equipment um, or having a kind of meeting between stakeholders, that's working really well. So there's definitely challenges. It's not as good. And you can't, if those relationships didn't exist already, you couldn't just jump in and say, let's have a WhatsApp call with strangers. But the ongoing delivery of, of existing projects is continuing, continuing um, quite well, I suppose, in spite of all the difficulties. I'd say that's pretty good. I'd say like in a sense, sort of like COVID also like allow sort of different sort of like pe people in different countries sort of to sort of like unite together on like a online platform and sort of like facilitate that sort of like working environment. So I mean, like, I guess like coming out of COVID, so that's probably gonna be more like flexible, sort of like walking, like flexible way to sort of like collaborate um, mm -hmm. between different uh, people, whether it be like in person or online, yeah. 
I think so. I think it's going to be much more acceptable to put into, um, say, proposals to international donors, and they could be multilateral um, funding agencies or, or bilateral aid or, or NGOs. But having remote workshops as well as face-to-face -face workshops, I think will become it'll be much more acceptable. People are much mm. more um, aware or much more able to yeah. perform um, effectively in, in this kind of work environment as well. So I think yeah, trying to take the the good things um, that we can from from this kind of work environment. But we also have to remember as well that many people don't have the luxuries that we have to be able to lock ourselves away and work from home in our, in our safe environments um, and make sure that we don't then exclude those who don't have access to such facilities and make sure their voices are still heard as well. So that's really important too. Yeah, I think those are really good points in terms of like how we sort of like, uh, like look at the challenges in the field of humanitarian engineering. So right now we're kind of, dive into more of your academic slash and industrial experience in the water and development sector mm -hmm. so um so with your years of involvement in the water sector like how did you find your way or realize that this was a few that really spoke to you and started getting involved in it um i think i've always been um i was very fortunate to grow up in in regional south australia um, having access to a lot of nature and I think I really that that impacted me a lot having that that kind of childhood and being fortunate enough to to have that experience um, and I always enjoyed the aquatic side of things um, so water I was always drawn to um, being in Australia water was obviously a very well not very was a not a challenging field to get into you know there's a lot of need for water in Australia there's a lot of demand and graduating when I did um, back in 2005 there was a lot of work over in the west um, as well um, to um, uh, to be had so it was quite easy to get into the um, bottom rung of the ladder and start up over there in the private sector um, and globally water is such an important commodity um, it's, it's both a necessity for life we need it for industrialization and industrial processes we need it to grow our food we need it to do all kinds of things in society. So water is something that's intertwined through every aspect of the um, sustainable development goals, for example. It's intertwined with every single um, country's national policies and priorities on how they're going to manage their resources. Water is very central to that. Um, and just looking at the SDGs themselves, um, you know, I think it's about 785 million people don't have access to a basic water provision at the moment. Um, Two billion people don't have access to sanitation um, on the planet. Um, and more than that, don't have access to adequate hand washing facilities, um, which is, you know, as we know, is so important for the prevent, prevention of disease and viruses, including, including COVID. So unfortunately, there's not going to be any work drying up for water professionals in my lifetime, at least. It's always going to be something we have to manage um, and work together to, to try and use sustainably. And I think the... Um, intersections of water as well um, with all kinds of um, uh, environmental and social needs it means that there's roles for engineers and scientists and social scientists and artists and all kinds to uh, kinds of professions to get involved and work in the water sector so I find it a really interesting space to work. I guess the follow-up question would be what's the most rewarding part about what you do? Uh, oh. That's a very good, very good question. There's a few. There's a few. Um, I'm really enjoying coming from coming from eight years in the United Nations um, and working um, in in the field and on the on the ground uh, and, and in management. Um, now being in a university and working um, with students 
um, and just seeing the passion and the enthusiasm and the new ideas that they have, and especially in the project space course that we have on offer, the humanitarian engineering projects at UNSW is really inspiring. It's really good to work with that next generation um, of professionals coming through. Um, engineers have really, really useful skills to both manage water, but more, more broadly help the world work towards achieving the targets under the sustainable development goals and whatever the next iteration will be as you try to improve the lives and livelihoods of those that are disadvantaged. Um, so working with the students is something I find really rewarding. Um, but then also rewarding is working with the overseas partners as well. When you meet these people and you go over there and you work there, you are made to feel so welcome. Um, you really have a lot of trust put into you to take the information that you've been given and work with them to develop a solution and, and do good with that. Um, so I find that very re rewarding as well. Yeah, I guess I can see how sort of like um, to solve sort of like to tackle the challenges with like the water sector. So we need sort of like there's there's going to be like all kinds of stakeholders that's going to be involved in it, like scientists, like even students as well, contributing to it. And then like the academic side of things as well. Yeah, I think I guess that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, so I think next question is sort of given experience as a project director, sort of with the transboundary management of freshwater and coastal resources, could you mm -hmm. expand on what this entails and sort of its purpose? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that was a very interesting project um, that when I was in the um, United Nations University and I was director of that project, looking at the last 20 years of transboundary water projects invested in um, by the GEF, which is the Global Environment Facility. The GEF um, came out of the Rio Convention in 19, um, 1991 and uh, was set up to tackle global environmental problems, as, as, the, name, as the name suggests. Um, it has the own donor countries that, that give it money, and it's the largest funder of environmental projects in the world. So this project in its almost 20 years when I was doing that work had spent almost $7 billion on transboundary projects around the world. And as project director, I was fortunate enough to be able to bring together teams of 20 um, experts in five different water areas. They were um, groundwater, um, lakes, rivers, the coastal zone and the open ocean. And look at that 20 years, almost 20 years then and now over 20 years of investment and pull out the science and the learnings that, it, that had been made all around the world and try and inform the next tranche, the next you know, X amount of billion dollars that we're going to be prioritized towards these water problems. And so this project finalized in um, 2012. Um, and back then we were seeing some of the key issues you know, that, that we we're very aware of today. Some the scientists were aware of before the general public, um, other ones um, were well known, such as sea level rise. Um, but things like microplastic pollution and plastic loading in rivers was identified way back then as something that was becoming an emerging problem. We're now very, very aware of that, of course. So working with scientists in these areas and bringing together the, the experience was a really wonderful experience um, to be able to do that. And that was being done in time for 2011. Um, which was the Rio Plus 20 conference where the world got together in Brazil and looked at what happened in the 20 years since the Rio Earth Summit in 1991. So really big global project. It was really interesting um, and really great to work with so many people. And those, those five teams of 20, so those 100 people, came from all over the world. And that was both natural scientists and social scientists. So it was really great to have all these different people pull apart the projects 
and see how to best manage water both across boundaries, but also the interconnectivity of water between say surface water and groundwater or terrestrial water and marine waters. It was really, really interesting. Yeah, I guess like, so how would you say, so like since transboundary water resource management sort of spans across sort of like countries, right? And what, what did you say are the benefits? Like how would it benefit everyone in terms of, I guess there's like the environmental aspect and there's a social aspect where like people getting like shared benefits. Yeah. No. So, so for example, if, if my, if I, if my country was upstream and your country was downstream, you'd have to very, be very interested in what I was doing upstream um, and making sure that I wasn't polluting the waterway, that I wasn't taking out too much, that I wasn't diverting it and making sure that the water that then comes into your country via the, the international border um, is of um, adequate quality and quantity for you to manage your economy um, and your ecosystems um, and do the things that you want to do as well. Um, as engineers um, and as a um, species, you know, we're, we're incredibly industrious at being able to build very large things. Um, hydropower dams being one example. So if I had a decision or desire to build a large dam upstream, that would have big impacts downstream and making sure that that water is managed across the boundary um, between countries is really important. These boundaries, of course, being largely um, uh, irrelevant with regards to how the water flows um, and the, the, the basins themselves. Yep. Um, yeah, I guess like this sort of sums up a bit of like how, um, how it actually seems like um, between different countries, whether it's like upstream, downstream. And I guess next question would be, what would you say are some of the biggest concerns our world and the water sector face today? And how do these challenges vary across different countries across the globe? Um, wow, big, big question, um, that one. Um, but I think, yeah, it, again, it comes back to, um, I touched on it just before, the quantity and quality of water and its sustainable use. Um, with the changing climate that we have due to the anthropogenic forcing um, of our carbon emissions, um, general rule is wetter places will get wetter, drier places will get drier. You know, that's very general. That's not everywhere, but we're going to have either too much water or not enough water compared to what we're normally um you know, what we've built our cities and our coastal infrastructure around, um, the croplands that we've um, designated, and of course, the ecosystems that have evolved there as well. So all kinds of pressures um, that come to managing that resource sustainably is something that's going to be a big, big challenge. Uh, and again, it has to be doing more with less. We've got both the increasing population of humans itself that is placing additional resource uh, pressure on the water resource, but then we also have, as we do lift people out of poverty and we do bring more people up from um, uh, into the middle class um, and, you know, they have you know, more meat in their diets, more dairy, you know, more, more energy intensive ways of living and more resource heavy consumption um, lifestyles, uh, as, as we do here in Australia, that's going to place additional resources as well. So how can we be more efficient um, with using our water? Um, and more broadly, environmentally, is going to be a big challenge um, that we face. And every country is going to have a different set of priorities and challenges. Um, how these operate and intersect is something that I'm also working on um, as well. And looking at the water energy food nexus um, is a space where if you are prioritizing water, uh, making sure that we're managing water, but not making things worse for, say, the energy or the food sector um, is something that you can look at and taking this nexus approach and trying not to um, 
move the problem elsewhere is something that needs to be considered as well. And again, so I think that's why it's so important to work with both the local partners in the country, but also to work across professions as well. And don't just solve things as engineers, but have the humanitarian approach of working collaboratively and working with those that already have the knowledge on the ground to make sure that our solutions are appropriate and sustainable is key. Yeah, I think it's really good that you highlight the challenges sort of like it concerns with sort of like um, the um, demand from population and also from the um, different sort of like different classes of people who have different sort of like resource um, consumption. And I guess like what you talk about before with the transboundary water um, manage, resource management, I guess that sort of allows us to see that um, to tackle the challenges in water sector, it's not really just tackle, tackling the issue in the country, but it could also be cross-boundary. So like uh, all countries working together towards um, solving, like tackling this issue, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And I think science, science is a language that can be the common language that mm -hmm. countries use to share that resource. I guess, um, so we, right now, as more like a career-related advisor, do you have any advice for any students or passionate individuals that want to pursue a similar path? Um, yes, I think there's, there's many different ways to get into uh, this field. Um, there's the way that I came, where it's go and get experience in industry first um, and then move across. That's a very um, accepted and, and traditional pathway as well. Um, but it's not the only way um, that things have to be done. There's now, um, you know, jobs looking for the um, uh, humanitarian engineering aspects of the degree and the expertise that's being asked for. There's the NGO sector and there's the deployment overseas as well. Um, Engineers Without Borders provides a tremendous resource and opportunity for students to get a taste when they're, when they're doing their degrees there and get some ideas as well. And I think doing things such as your honours project, if you're doing an undergraduate degree, an honours project in this space could be a great way to see how you enjoy it and also make some connections out there in the real, in the, in the real world with, with in-country partners too. Um, and I suppose, yeah, volunteering, going to conferences, speaking to people is, is some really good, really sound advice. And, and for sort of like, like graduate students stepping into the professional industry, like how would you say are some of the ways that they could still get involved in like humanitarian engineering? while working as a professional engineer? No, I think that's something that I'm that you guys are teaching me. Um, I've already had students that have graduated from their undergraduate engineering degree at UNSW reach out to me um, and they're working in the private sector as graduate engineers and they're you know, leading the young professional network or something like that. And they're bringing in the humanitarian engineering expertise, experts um, and professionals to speak to them about it. I think you... Um, incoming generation or I'm not sure what, what the right term is but the people that are now making that first step into the um, professional world um, also tell your employers what you want and tell what tell them what is important to you I think you are much more global in your thinking much more perhaps concerned about inequality um, and much more concerned about the environment and making sure that's managed sustainably um, for you and for, for the future generations to come. So I think, you know, not being shy just to speak to the you know, middle and upper management about what's important to you. And together you have a voice and things such as Engineers Australia, um, Engineers Without Borders, um, those kind of platforms are great ways to meet like-minded people as well. Thank you for sort of providing insights into sort of like how students can sort of pursue going to like, uh, like sort of like a path into like the water and development sector and also sort of like how they could sort of be involved in humanitarian engineering. 
So right now we're just gonna like go into touching more about the UNSW humanitarian engineering courses offerings. So UNSW offers a range of humanitarian related courses and you're actually the lecturer for fundamentals of humanitarian engineering. Um, so I wanted to ask, what other humanitarian engineering courses can students take and how does the humanitarian engineering minor work at UNSW? Yes, we're really excited to finally have a, um, a humanitarian engineering minor on offer at UNSW. And this is for engineering students in any school at the university. And there's a minor in humanitarian engineering for those doing an engineering degree. And then there's also a minor in um, humanitarian um, science and technology for those in the School of Chemical Engineering that are undertaking a Bachelor of Science and Technology that tends to be more food and nutrition focused. So no matter what degree you're doing at UNSW, you, you have the opportunity to um, complete a minor as part of that degree. In order to complete a minor, you have to have completed 24 units um, of um, approved courses. Uh, one of those being the one that you mentioned, the Fundamentals of Humanitarian Engineering. Another one is ENG 4102, which is the Humanitarian Engineering Projects course, where you actually get to have some hands-on time in the maker spaces or, um, uh, or online um, working um, to build a solution. Um, but importantly, not just build the solution, but then how will it actually be implemented in country? And back when travel was allowed, we had students from that course then go to Uganda and work with an in-country NGO um, and Australian partner, the Ugandan Australian Love Mercy Foundation, to actually take what they'd been doing um, and then go and look at um, how it could be implemented in-country was really exciting. We're really excited to offer a new course. This year is the first time it's been offered called um, ENG4103, uh, which is the International Humanitarian Response Course. And that's offered in partnership with Red R Australia. So students will complete nine weeks of the course here at UNSW and one week of the course down at Mount Macedon, um, Red R headquarters in Victoria um, and complete their one week essentials of humanitarian practice training and then be accredited for that. Um, that's the first course that you, you can do to then be able to be sent overseas, deployed in the humanitarian engineering field. Um, other courses are Arts 2755, which is the um, Global Development in Practice, um, and having a course offered from the Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture is really exciting to have engineers in with those development study students and look at things from a different angle, not just look at it from a technical viewpoint, but look at it from perhaps more of a, you know, people people angle and taking into the social and, co and cultural contexts um, to a much deeper level than perhaps they have in their engineering degree to date. There's then um, other courses that the students can take. Um, you can see them on the unsw.to slash he website. Um, students can then cho choose a course that's more uh, targeted to perhaps their interests in say, you know, food and nutrition or renewable energies um, or water or sustainable development. Um, you can pick a different course there to tailor your minor to your interests. Yep, that sounds really interesting. And can these be taken as electives or gen eds, or does it have to be in the minor? Uh, no, they can be taken as, as gen eds or um, professional electives as well. Um, and so I'm happy to, for any students that are interested to reach out to me. We also have a humanitarian engineering champion in each school of the faculty um, who are aware of the minor um, and how it fits in exactly to their degrees as well. So if you can't fit every course for the minor into your degree, you may just want to do one or two. And we also have, of course, the honours thesis as well, um, where you can do your honours thesis as a um, humanitarian thesis. 
um, so humanitarian engineering thesis. Um, that can also contribute to the minor in lieu of Eng4102 if you did not have enough space for that. But yeah, reach out to me or the HE champs in your school, um, and then we can help guide you through the process. Um, and you mentioned Eng4102 before international humanitarian response. Um, what do you think it means for engineers to be involved um, in humanitarian response at the global level? Um, I think for the I think for the recipients and for the people in need, having engineers there, having an accredited professional um, over there that might be working in water or structures or waste um, me means that the work that's being done is being done to a, an appropriate standard and to an appropriate quality that, that, that is um, uh, needed in these cases. For the engineers themselves, I think being able to contribute to these problems and help those less fortunate is really important. And Redar Australia gives that opportunity for people to go overseas and be deployed. Um, you know, and the employee, their employers in Australia and their families and friends um, also help make that work as well by allowing them to go overseas um, and give them that opportunity. Sometimes family members can go with it, depends on where the location is. I think having engineers as part of humanitarian efforts be it in an emergency situation to a natural disaster or as part of ongoing chronic um, development needs, such as in you know, um, poor and disadvantaged communities or in refugee camp situations. Having engineers there means that you've got people that have the technical ability um, to improve the, the lives and the surroundings of those that need it most. I think that's really like interesting because before coming into like university, I always thought like, with um, response services, it would just be people um, working on their response, but like there wouldn't be technical issues involved with that. So like, it's really interesting to like see the broader perspective of like what goes into the management and like preparation of these events. That's it. And you think you think about if 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 everything got taken away, and um, how long you would last without proper shelter and then proper food and water. Um, access to health and medical equipment engineers play a role in providing all of those um all of those needs yep and lastly what do you wish to inspire within students and what do you believe they can gain from taking these humanitarian engineering courses at uni hmm. i think these courses are a great opportunity for those that want to do something um, with those less fortunate um, they give you the taste and the tools to be able to perhaps apply your engineering skills in resource scarce and um, alien situations and perhaps what you haven't been familiar with to date. Um, the new Colombo Plan Mobility Grants funded by the Australian government are a great way for us to get our students overseas and also work in other countries as well. Um, EWB and also um, UNSW itself is doing great work in regional Australia um, as well and that's not something I'm working with myself but there's also those opportunities to do stuff in Australia as well um, and I think to inspire the students I think EWB and the work you do is, is really inspiring you know your name's Engineers Without Borders um, being able to take your skill set overseas and work with those that need it most is something that is inspiring for all I think the amount of hands that are raised in my class when I ask who's heard of sustainable development goals, everyone's hands shoot up. You know, you guys know the challenges, you guys know the world that you're inheriting. Um, making that change and making that difference is something that, that you will play. And as engineers, you bring an incredibly useful skill, um, a set of skills to apply to these problems. Yes, uh, definitely. Like seeing all of the changes on the news, like every day, it's like really, it's like, like it's really shocking like how much there is that that you could work on yeah 
I think that ends it. I'll let uh, John do a conclusion. Yeah, so that, that concludes today's podcast. So thank you for joining us today, Andrew. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Muskan, for having me very much. Um, always a pleasure to interact with EWB. You guys do such great work and have such a, a huge cohort of members. Um, I'm here if you have any questions, any of the listeners or want to follow up on anything, um, please do reach out. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so with the students, you can also watch the previous podcast with Andrew on YouTube or Spotify under EWB UNSW. And thank you so much for tuning in for this episode with us at EWB. And we hope you all look forward to our upcoming podcast for this year. Yep. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye.